The Secrets of All Power Probably you have read of the great success of certain men who have made such wonderful and astounding names in the history of the world. Such men, whether they consciously or unconsciously knew the secret of their powers and successes, made themselves famous by unfolding their superconscious mind. Now, the superconscious mind contains all the secrets of occult and magnetic power. Napoleon, who was a master of the superconscious state, used to obtain practically eight hours rest in 15 minutes by looking intently at a dark spot on the walls of his room. Now, this superconscious state is called by the Hindus samadhi, or superconsciousness. I will give you the principal secrets of this state and how to enter into it so that you may develop psychic power. There are many methods to do this with, but they are not practical, and most of them are so mystical that the majority of sensible people would be foolish to think even of doing them, for they are dangerous. I think the so-called trance states should be left alone, especially with the beginner. Every night for at least a week, just before you retire, or better, just before you fall asleep, give to yourself this suggestion. I will unfold superconsciously. Now in a few days you will find that you are actually thinking and acting superconsciously. This is the secret of Napoleon's power. This exercise which I am going to give you will enable you to go into the superconscious state, but you will have to practice and practice to do it. Or if you do not, you will merely hypnotize yourself. There are what might be termed three bodies in man. First, the conscious, then the think body, and then the causal body. If you succeed, and you should do so, in entering into this causal body, you may levitate your body or accomplish materialization, and also astral body traveling and projection. The method is as follows. Sit in an upright position on the floor. That is, have your body above the hips held in a perfect line, your legs under you. Now take your left and right hands and do this. With the thumbs of both hands placed over the holes in the ears, firmly close them. Now take the forefingers and close your eyes, or rather hold them over the eyes. Then next, take the middle finger of the right hand and close the right nostril, and breathe in the vital principle, prana, of the atmospheric air, which is an inhalation. After breathing in this manner, or one full inhalation, take the middle finger of the left hand and close both or the other nostril. Thus, as you will see, you are holding, inhibiting, the air into your lungs. Then after a few seconds, expel the air through both nostrils, after you take away both middle fingers, but do not remove the other fingers or your hands. Now let your inhalation be taken in eight seconds your retention to be a full 40 seconds, and your exhalation in 20 seconds. Do this at first slowly, for a few weeks, until you can double it. If you desire to double it, you will be on the road to still higher power. Now, after you have done this for at least two weeks, you will practice the same exercise, excepting placing the fingers over the eyes. You will concentrate your mind on the tip end of your nose, and look intently thereon until the ecstatic trance-like state is produced. If you practice just like I have herein told you, you will overcome and transcend the hypnotic state and go into the twilight state, which is superconsciousness, or what I call neither asleep nor awake.
This state is what I term transcendental consciousness or consciousness without thought. This science is termed by me as transcendosis and its phenomena, transcendentalization. If you practice this for levitation, you will incessantly suggest over and over to yourself that you are becoming positive to the law of gravitation and that your entire body is becoming lighter and lighter and that every time that you breathe, you will overcome the attractions of the earthly magnetism. If for astral propelling, astral body traveling or projection, etc., you will merely will and make the suggestion while willing that you will do the same, you must remember that you not only accomplish an aim by practice but by exercise, and that you do or accomplish your aim not only by thinking but by acting. You should use some very good occult incense, something that will tend to tranquilize your mind. If you write into our society, you may purchase a large box of the best incense for one dollar. If you sincerely practice these instructions, especially for astral projection and astral traveling, just before you fall asleep at night, you will have a conscious knowledge of your experiences when you awake. If you enter into the state that I have mentioned, you will remember all. Again, you will not any longer need an alarm clock to awaken with, as you can awaken yourself at will. Again, you may heal yourself or others by practicing this method. If you use the blue or purple crystals, which you may also procure from us, you can become a genuine clairvoyant by entering this state, for the crystal will tend to concentrate your mind upon what is necessary to an unfoldment. And again, the blue or purple crystal is better than the mere transparent ones as they tire the optic nerve and might produce paralysis of the eye nerve. All power is contained in the air that you breathe, so all depends upon the knowledge of storing in this air and of securing the vital principle that it contains. This is the entire secret of all oriental psychic powers. But of course, this has nothing to do with the spiritual ones. The student should know that he must not eat meat or use any heavy foods, smoke tobacco, and he should always, just previous to the practice of this exercise, drink a glass of hot milk with a little lump of butter melted in it. After you have entered into the state of consciousness without thought, all depends upon polarization and vibration to accomplish what phenomena that you desire. The most interesting phenomena is produced by suggestion. Complete self-catalepsy, oriental burial alive, suspension of life itself, and many other occult things may all be accomplished by the method that I have here given you. You will notice when you first practice that the body will perspire freely. In the next stage, it will quiver. Then lastly, it will jump, but do not worry, for this will in time vanish. Also, you will in little or no time commence to have visions and to see the departed dead. But later on, this will all materialize into genuine psychic power. You should not, to start with, and especially alone, try astral body traveling, for it might end up disastrously for you. It is always best to have a friend on hand and tell him, if you do not awaken in 15 minutes, to call you and to say, When I count three, you will be wide awake. This is the safest plan and one of the best for prevention. Prevention is a great thing in occultism. Remember that you must practice these exercises four times every day.
Suggestion along with this great and simple and practical method that I have given you will unfold all the great psychic centers in your psychic economy. In the chart on this work, which is in this work, you will see how that these centers work, communicate and assist in the telegraphic communications of what is to be done. From the auditory center, man comes in contact with the visual centers, and these act both dependent and independent of one another. The psychic depends only in a little way upon the physical, but the physical depends upon the psychical. And again, the causal depends on none of these, because it is all in man. If you practice for automatic writing, use the same method, and have paper and pencil ready, and you will be surprised at the instant result. The moment that your mind ceases to vibrate with your conscious thoughts, that very instant you will commence to make great progress. You must always expect, and then this again will wonderfully tend to assist the operations of your mind along the way of directing it to its final unfoldment and realization. The subconscious mind is only the animal mind in man. When we come to the conscious mind, which is the mere thinking and acting one in man, but above all, this we find the region of pure mystery and genius, which is the superconscious mind, and the sublime regions of intuition. If you would develop your intuitive powers, first unfold this superconscious mind, for it is the secret of all power. When you associate yourself with a thing, you become that thing. So also with this superconsciousness, you will become it. The lever of Archimedes is not any other thing but this control of this psychic air, which the Orientals term prana, or the vital principle. These psychic centers which I have shown you on another page of this work constitute an apparatus which combines the activity of your sense centers into a higher entity, and this is brought about by practicing this exercise, which produces an ecstatic condition of your mind and by associating yourself with what you desire through self-suggestion. Now, polarization and vibration are all included in this exercise, so all the mere talk and philosophy I've left out, and in the very start I have given you only what is practical and reasonable, and which my own common sense prescribes and approves. Shakespeare, Milton, Napoleon, Christ, Confucius, and thousands of men have consciously or unconsciously practiced or exercised this self-same principle in the abstract. This explains their wonderful successes in life. The same is possible and the way is opened now to all. So all that you have to do is to practice. The nail is not driven into the slab of wood with one blow of the hammer, but with many. So if you do not succeed, do not find fault with this lesson, for the fault is and lies within your own self. And by repetition, keeping it up, you are bound to succeed. The house is not built in a day, thus it is with everything. Be successful in all things through practice. Oriental Phrenology Phrenology is a Greek compound, signifying a discourse on the mind. The system which exclusively passes by this name was founded by Dr. Francis Joseph Gall, a German physician, born in 1757. The brain is the organ by and through which mind in this life is manifested. This truth is now disputed scarcely anywhere. Phrenologists conjectured that different brains differ in quality, but were long without any indications of these differences. 
The doctrine of the temperaments has thrown considerable, though not perfect, light on this point, and for this we are indebted to Dr. Thomas of Paris. There are four temperaments, accompanied with different degrees of power and activity. In other words, quality of brain. These are the bilious, the nervous, the sanguine, and the lymphatic. These temperaments were observed and distinguished long before the discovery of phrenology, though to little purpose. They figure in the fanciful philosophy of Burton and similar writers of former times, and much nonsense is written connected with them. Phrenology has adopted them and made them intelligible and useful. They are supposed to depend upon the constitution of particular bodily systems, the muscular and fibrous systems being predominantly active, seem to give rise to the bilious temperament. The name is equivocal, and therefore not well applied. The other three are more appropriate. The brain and nerves predominating in activity give the nervous, the lungs, heart and blood vessels, the sanguine, while the glands and assimilating organs present the lymphatic temperament. The predominance of these several bodily systems is indicated by certain sufficient obvious external signs, whence our power of recognizing them. The nervous temperament is marked by silky thin hair, thin skin, small thin muscles, quick muscular motion, paleness, and often delicate health. The whole nervous system, brain included, is active, and the mental manifestations vivacious. The bilious has black, hard, and wiry hair, dark or black eyes, dark skin, moderate fullness, but much firmness of flesh, with a harsh outline and countenance in person. The bilious temperament gives much energy of brain and mental manifestation, and the countenance is marked and decided. This is the temperament for enduring much mental as well as bodily labor. The sanguine temperament has well-defined forms, moderate plumpness and firmness of flesh, light or red hair, blue eyes, and fair and often ruddy countenance. It is accompanied with great activity of the blood vessels, an animated countenance, and a love of outdoor exercise. With a mixture of the bilious, for in most individuals the temperaments are mixed, often all four occurring in one person. It would give the soldier's temperament. The brain is active. The lymphatic temperament is indicated by a round form, as in the fat and corpulent soft flesh, full cellular tissue, fair hair and pale skin. The vital action is languid, the circulation weak and slow. The brain also is slow and feeble in its action and the mental manifestations correspond. The primitive faculties of mind, as connected with their organs in the brain. Mind, which was considered by the metaphysicians as a single thing or essence, was said by them to be capable of being in different states, in each of which states it's made one of its various manifestations, as memory, judgment, anger, etc. In no particular does the phrenological hypothesis differ more from the metaphysical than in this. The phrenological doctrine is that the brain, the organ of the mind, is divided into various faculties, each of which has its own mode of acting. It is held, first, that by accurate observation of human actions, 
it is possible to discriminate the dispositions and intellectual power of man, such as love, anger, benevolence, observation, reflection, etc. Secondly, that the true form of the brain can be ascertained from the external form of the head. The brain, though the softer substance, being what rules the shape of the skull, just as a shell takes its form from the animal within. Thirdly, the organs or parts into which the brain is divided, all of which organs are possessed by every individual except in the case of idiocy, appear on the brain's surface in folds or convolutions, somewhat like the bowels or viscera of an animal, but have a well-ascertained fibrous connection to the whole substance of the brain, with one point at its base, called the medulla oblongata, which unites the brain to the spinal cord. The organs have thus each a conical form from the medulla oblongata to the surface, the whole being not inaptly compared to the stalks and flower of a cauliflower. Fourthly, the brain is divided into two equal parts called hemispheres. On each side of the fosse or division between these hemispheres, the same organ occurs. All the organs are therefore double in analogy with the eyes, ears, etc. But when the term organ is used, both organs are meant. The organs which are situated close to the middle line drawn vertically on the head, though close to each other, are nevertheless double, for example, individuality, benevolence, firmness, etc. Fifthly, Beside the brain proper, there is a small brain attached to the hinder part of the base of the brain called the cerebellum. Sixthly, the brain, including the cerebellum, is divided into the anterior, middle, and posterior lobes. The cerebellum forms part of the posterior lobe. The anterior lobe contains all of the intellectual faculties. The posterior and lower range in the middle lobe are the regions of the animal propensities. While the moral sentiments are found, with a sort of local preeminence, to have their organs developed on the top or coronal surface of the head. The gradation in size of the organs is thus denoted. Very small, small, rather small, moderate, rather full, full, rather large, large, very large. It has been found convenient to express these degrees in numbers. Thus, one, 2. Idiocy, 3. 4. Very small, 5. 6. Small, 7. 8. Rather small, 9. 10. Moderate, 11. 12. Rather full, 13. 14. Full, 15. 16. Rather large, 17. 18. Large, and 19. 20. Very large, 21. The intermediate numbers 3, 5, 7, etc., denote something between the two denominations, and have been found useful. In practice, the general size of the head is measured in several directions with caliper compasses. Twenty males from 25 to 50 years of age measured from the occipital spine, the bony knot over the hollow of the neck, to the point over the nose between the eyebrows on an average seven and a half inches, some of them being as high as eight and a half. From the occipital spine to the hollow of the ear, the average was four and three-eighths, some being as high as five, others as low as three and a half. 
from the hollow of the ear to the point between the eyebrows, as above, average nearly five, some being five and a half, others four and a half. From the same hollow of the ear to the top of the head, about an inch behind the center, the organ of firmness, the average was five nine fifteenths, some being six and a half, others five and a half. Across the head, from a little below the tops of the ears, from destructiveness to destructiveness, the average was five and three tenths, some being six and a half and others five and a half. The averages are in these 20 individuals higher than those of the natives of Britain generally, some of them being large and none small. Phrenologists further distinguish between power and activity in the organs of the brain. Power, in whatever degree possessed, is capability of feeling, perceiving, or thinking, while activity is the exercise of power, or the putting into action the organ with more or less intensity. The powers of the mind, as manifested by the organs, are called faculties. A faculty may be defined to be a particular power of thinking or feeling. A faculty has seven characteristics, in order to our concluding it primitive and distinct in the mind, namely, one, when it exists in one kind of animal and not in another, two, when it varies in the two sexes of the same species, three, when it is not in proportion to the other faculties of the same individual, four, when it appears earlier or later in life than the other faculties, five, when it may act or repose singly, six, when it propagated from parent to child, and seven, when it may singly preserve health or singly manifest disease. Division or classification of the faculties. The faculties have been divided by Gall and Spurzheim into two great orders, feeling and intellect, or affective and intellectual faculties. The feelings are divided into two genera, the propensities and the sentiments. By a propensity, it is meant an internal impulse, which incites to a certain action and no more. By a sentiment, a feeling, which, although it has inclination, has also an emotion superadded. The second order of faculties, the intellectual also suffers division into the perceptive, or knowing, and the reflective faculties. The perceptive faculties are again divided into three genera. First, the external senses and voluntary motion. Second, the internal powers which perceive existence, or make man and animals acquainted with external objects and their physical qualities. And third, the powers which perceive the relations of external objects. The fourth genus compromises the reflective faculties, which act on all the other powers. In other words, compare, discriminate, and judge. The following is a table of the names of the organs synoptically given. Effective. Two columns. One, propensities, and two, sentiments. The first number in the first column, the second number in the second column. One, amativeness. Ten, self-esteem. Effective. Two columns, the first column, one, propensities, the second column is two, sentiments, one, propensities, one, amativeness, two, 
philoprogenitiveness, three, inhabitiveness and concentrativeness, four, adhesiveness, five, combativeness, six, destructiveness, elementiveness, love of life, seven, secretiveness, eight, acquisitiveness, nine, constructiveness, column two, sentiments, 10, self-esteem, 11, love of approbation, 12, cautiousness, 13, benevolence, 14, veneration, 15, firmness, 16, conscientiousness, 17, hope, 18, wonder, 19, ideality, 20, wit or ludicrousness, 21, imitation. Intellectual, 1, perceptive. 22, individuality, 23, form, 24, size, 25, weight, 26, coloring, 27, locality, 28, number, 29, order, 30, eventuality, 31, time, 32, tune, 33, language. 2, reflective, 34, comparison, 35, causality. Order first, feelings, genus one, propensities. The propensities are common to man and the lower animals. They neither perceive nor reason, but only feel. Number one, amativeness. This organ is situated immediately over the nape of the neck and fills up the space between the ears behind, or rather between the mastoid processes, or projecting bones behind the ears. It generally forms a projection in that part and gives a thickness to the neck when it is large and a spareness when small. As the basis of the domestic affections, it is one of great importance, and its regulation has ever been one of the prime objects of moral systems, laws, and institutions. Number two, philoprogenitiveness. This, in man as well as animals, is the feeling of the love of his offspring. It depends on no other faculty, as reason or benevolence, it is primitive. And in the mother, who for wise reasons is gifted with it most strongly, its object, the infant, instantly rouses it to a high state of excitement. It is situated in the middle of the back of the head, and when large, projects like a portion of an ostrich egg. The organ is one of the easiest to distinguish in the human head. Those who are flat and perpendicular there, instead of being delighted, are annoyed by children. It is generally smaller in males than in females, though sometimes found larger, and men so organized delight to carry about and nurse children. The feeling gives a tender sympathy generally with weakness and helplessness, and we find it often returned by the young themselves to the old and feeble. It is essential to a soft kind attendant on the sick, to a nurse or nursery maid, and to a teacher of youth. It induces women to make pets of small and gentle animals when tyrant circumstances have kept them single and denied them offspring of their own. Its feelings are, by a kind providence, rendered so delightful that they are extremely apt to be carried the length of excess, and spoiling and pampering children into vicious selfishness is the ruinous consequence. Number three. Inhabitiveness, concentrativeness. This organ is situated immediately above the preceding. The purpose of a faculty which prompts men to settle instead of roaming, 
which latter habit is inconsistent with agriculture, commerce, and civilization is obvious. Nostalgia, or homesickness, is the disease of the feeling. Number four, adhesiveness. This organ is at the middle of the posterior edge of the parietal bone. It attaches men and even animals to each other and is the foundation of that pleasure which we feel not only in bestowing but receiving friendship. It is the faculty which prompts the embrace and the shake of the hand and gives the joy of being reunited to friends. Acting in conjunction with amativeness, it gives constancy and duration to the attachments of the married. Amativeness alone will not be found sufficient for this, hence the frequent misery of sudden love marriages, as they are called, founded on that single impulse. The feeling attaches many persons to pets, such as birds, dogs, rabbits, horses, and other animals, especially when combined with philoprogenitiveness. With this combination, the girl lavishes caresses on her doll and on her little companions. Number five, combativeness. The organ of this propensity is situated behind and a little upward from the ear. Anatomically, at the posterior inferior angle of the parietal bone. A small endowment of this faculty manifests itself in that over-gentle and indolent character, which is easily aggressed upon easily repelled by the appearance of difficulty and trouble, and which naturally seeks the shades and yeti corners of life. Nations so organized, the Hindus, for example, are easily conquered by others, under whom they naturally sink into a condition more or less of servitude. A large endowment, on the other hand, shows itself in a love of danger for its own sake, a delight in adventurous military life, and a tendency to bluster, controversy, and turmoils of all kinds. Persons with large combativeness may be readily recognized in private society by their disposition to contradict and wrangle. They challenge the clearest propositions and take a pleasure in doubting where everybody else is convinced. The generality of boys manifest an active combativeness in their adventurous spirit hence their disposition to fighting and to the working of all kinds of petty mischief. To control and guide the propensity is one of the most delicate but almost most important duties of the educator. When combativeness is deranged, we have a violent and noisy and often a dangerous patient. Intoxication generally affords a great stimulus to it, hence drunken quarrels and fightings. Number six, destructiveness. This organ is situated on both sides of the head and immediately over the external opening of the ear, extending a little forward and backward from it and rising a trifle above the top or upper flap of the ear. It corresponds to the lower portion of the squamous plate of the temporal bone. When the organ is large, the opening of the ear is depressed. It is still generally considered as giving the impulse to kill and destroy. But in man, this propensity is shown to have, under the control of the higher sentiments and intellect, a legitimate sphere of exercise. It prompts beasts and birds of prey to keep down the redundant breeds of the lower animals, and enables man to kill that he may eat. Anger, resentment, and indignation in all their shapes likewise spring from this faculty. A small endowment of this faculty is one of the elements of a soft character. Persons so organized seem to want that which gives momentum to human operations, 
like an axe wanting in back weight. Alimentiveness or appetite for food. Alimentiveness is the desire of or appetite for food. In this feeling, as such, the stomach is not concerned. Its functions are strictly confined to the reception and digestion of our food. Alimentiveness from its near neighborhood to destructiveness seems to have a peculiar influence on that faculty, rousing it to great energy when its own enjoyments are endangered or interrupted. Love of life. This self-preservation involved in the love of life is certainly not accounted for by any known organ or combination of organs. Cautiousness is fear of injury, fear of death. But it is not love of life. This feeling is powerfully manifested by some when their life is in no danger, but who look upon the close of life as a very great evil. Number seven, secretiveness. The order of this faculty will be observed to be situated immediately above that of destructiveness, at the inferior edge of the parietal bone, or in the middle of the side of the brain. Legitimate use of the faculty is to exercise that control over the outward manifestation of the other faculties which is necessary to a prudent reserve. Without it, and of course, in those in whom the organ is small and the manifestation weak, the feelings express themselves too openly. Number 8. Acquisitiveness. The organ of this faculty is situated farther forward than and a little above secretiveness at the anterior-inferior angle of the parietal bone. The faculty of acquisitiveness could not, and no faculty could, be given to man by his creator for a mean, groveling, and immoral use. Accordingly, when we consider it aright, we recognize it in the dignity of the greatest utility. In a word, it is the faculty through whose impulse man accumulates capital, and nations are rendered rich, great, and powerful. Without the faculty, man would be content to satisfy his daily wants, although even in this he would fail. But the surplus, which, under the impulse of this faculty, he contributes to the store of wealth which accumulates from generation to generation, would not exist. Under proper regulation, then, the faculty is of greatest value to man. By means of it, he gathers up the fragments that nothing may be lost. Excessive pursuit of wealth is, however, an abuse of the faculty, and too much the vice of civilization when it advances, as it has hitherto done, without adequate moral improvement. Number 9. Constructiveness. The situation of this organ is immediately behind the temples, in the frontal bone, above the sphenotemporal suture. The faculty of which this organ is the instrument is the power of mechanically making, constructing, and fashioning by changing the forms of matter. Many of the inferior animals possess it as the bee, the beaver, birds, and insects. Some savages have it in such small endowments as never to have built huts or made clothes, or even the simplest instruments for catching fish. In all operatives who excel in their arts, engravers, joiners, tailors, etc., and in children who early manifest a turn for drawing figures and cutting them out in paper, the organ is large. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes.
This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and we'll have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.